If you're a middle-aged white guy trying to sit there and write about the troubles that indigenous people from other countries face, maybe don't do that. Just my 10 cents. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we hand wave away plot holes like it's nobody's business, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and I am joined by my co-host of Chaos, Jessica Frazier. Well, hello. Hello. How are you doing? Ah, I'm doing a lot better now that I am not on jury duty anymore, so. (laughs) Woohoo! I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a civic duty that we should all be happy to perform, but it's really nice when you don't have to do it. I've been on a jury before. Was it a cool case? No, it was a disturbing, unsettling case, but it was still a civic case. It was just, yeah, it was, it was not great. And I couldn't talk about it. So let's just say I (laughs) I took out a lot of my angst with a tennis racket against the wall. Not, not the racket itself, but hitting the ball against the wall a lot. Yeah. That's civic duty it is. So I was 19 at the time. I think the last time I had to report for jury duty in person, I was 25, give or take. Mm. And then I got dismissed because they asked me if I would believe a teenager's word over a cop. And at the time I was like, hell no. And these days. uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Different opinions now. (laughs) Yeah. Tangent aside. The reason that we're here on this podcast is because we like to look at and talk about comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to look at the weirdest, silliest, strangest, and coolest moments and examine how they have been woven into pop culture and history in general. In this episode, we're hitting the open road of the Marvel Universe and looking at US-1, a 1980s maxi-series about a superhero big rig trucker. But Before we go down that road, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? So I had a suggestion made to me by Lauren from Outer Plains in Santa Rosa. Hey, Lauren. And she told me about a comic that is set in the same universe as the Alice in Leatherland that I started reading and I have on my pull list now. Yeah, the one that you mentioned a couple episodes ago? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's also from Black Mask. And it's called Destiny New York. I'm on issue one, which is a veritable chonker. It's absolutely awesome. There are two girls kissing in a closet within the first three pages. So you know I'm already in. (laughs) 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 And it's cool because it's set in a version of New York where magic exists and follows a school for kids that have been told by one seer or another, that they have a destiny or a prophecy to fulfill. Hmm. And the students have different abilities and visual characteristics. Like one has a third eye and she's supposed to like see the greatest lie out of the truths or something like that. And she's like, but I don't even know what that is. It's all super vague. Hmm. (laughs) Like these poor kids. And I've grabbed the first five issues and I will be tearing through these in no time i'm sure because it's already super fun 
Yeah, that sounds fantastic, to be completely honest. Well, there was a book that I read about a year ago called Magic for Liars, which is a boarding school for magic users. And then the sister of one of the faculty is called in to investigate a death. And it's really cool because she's not a magic user, but her sister, who is part of the faculty, is. So it's it was cool. I liked it a lot. That's neat. But yeah, that was a cool book. Nice. Yeah. Well, what about you? What you been reading, watching, listening to? All right. So I'm always mildly embarrassed to admit that I'm a Conan fan, mainly because I think so many people just associate him with Arnold Schwarzenegger and those middling to not good movies that they made with him in the 80s. But I really fell in love with his comics back in 2005 or so when they were being done by Dark Horse, and they were really, really good. They were these wonderfully dark, low fantasy stories that always seemed to balance like action and tragedy and comedy really well. And Marvel got the character back a couple of years ago, so they've been doing really cool work with him lately. The new Conan series is really fun and feels really true to the original stories, but they've also displaced him through time, and now they've got him hanging out in the mainstream Marvel universe. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it's in this series called The Savage Avengers. It's wild. It's written by Jerry Duggan, who he wrote arguably the best Conan story that I've ever read in Conan 2099, which is they took that Spider-Man 2099 universe, and then they slapped him right in the middle of it. Oh. <laughs> it's great. Like, the way that it was written was so perfect. And it, it's one of those books where anybody who sits there, and even if they say they're not a Conan fan, I just say, you need to read this. It's wonderful. But anyway, so Savage Avengers features him going on adventures with characters like Wolverine, Deadpool, the Punisher, and Elektra. It's so dumb, but it's so much fun. Like, early on in the series, he gets a Venom symbiote joined with him, but it's really weak, so it can only form weapons for him. <laughs> it's just, it. it's great. It's an absolute guilty pleasure, and I refuse to apologize for this. So it's unfortunately not available on Marvel Unlimited, which is probably why I hadn't heard about it, but the back issues are all pretty cheap, and I grabbed a ton of them from Brian's comics on my last run, and I've just been having a blast reading them. We probably should do an episode, actually, where we talk about the fact that Conan has been in comics for almost 50 years, and oh, he started at Marvel originally, and now he's back at Marvel, but there was a long hiatus. Ooh, I want to hear that arc. Absolutely. All right, moving right along. So as tempting as it is to just dive right into US-1, the comic, and its strangeness, I don't think we can talk about it without covering some background info first. So have you ever heard the term trucking culture before? I've absolutely heard of trucking culture, but I'm not too familiar with the intricacies. My uncle drove a truck for years, but I think he's retired at this point. Okay. I think it's something that a lot of people aren't really aware of, or they hear about it and then they start making jokes. Like, I got some glimpses of it when one of my photography gigs had me living on a tour bus for a few months. We would visit a lot of legit truck stops in the middle of nowhere. And I'm not talking gas stations. I'm talking full rest stops where restaurants served truckers before other patrons. The bathrooms had shower stalls and all of the stores felt like kind of miniature Walmarts. They were just massive and they had anything that you could think of that you might need on a long road trip. It's this side that if you live in an urban environment, folks aren't really going to see or understand. And it's 
this staggeringly huge thing that most people never even seem to think about. But trucking is this major part of the United States and its industry, as noted in this factoid from the American Trucking Associations, if you would be so kind. Nearly every good consumed in the U.S. is put on a truck at some point. As a result, the trucking industry hauled 72.5% of all freight transported in the United States in 2019, equaling to 11.84 billion tons. The trucking industry was a $791.7 billion industry in that same year, representing 80.4% of the nation's freight bill. Yeah, it's... I was, actually, I was really surprised, actually, to see that it was that much. I assumed that trains and, and shipping were at least a little bit bigger, but... No, because we don't... Here's the problem is that because of the auto industry in the United States, we stifled the ability to make all the train tracks necessary to get the things to all the places we need. And now it's horrendously expensive yeah. to go on a train... Yeah, I don't know that people know that about the United States. So for our international listeners, you can't take trains here. It's very expensive. Yeah. First of all, there's no real national rail system. And second, the rail system that does exist is prohibitively expensive unless you are a not far distance commuter. Like I took Amtrak for for about a year traveling between Sacramento and San Francisco a couple of times a week. And it was Mm -hmm. great. It was less expensive to do that a couple of times a week than it was to drive down. But yeah, it's prohibitively expensive for most people. Yeah. And there are some cities in the United States that do have a decent transportation system. Portland has a decent one. Uh, New York, obviously. Chicago. Chicago, yeah. But I mean, for the most part, across country, especially because we're such a large country and we are, of course, expected to share things. I don't California has to share everything. Listen to me. I sound so greedy. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What is it? We have the, I think it's like, it's top five or top 10 economies in the world. We're the top sixth economy in the world by ourselves. Yeah. 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 It's wild. So if we just dumped off everyone else, the rest of the states would be screwed. Actually, a few would hold their own, but those Midland states? mm -mm. Yeah. (laughs) suffering well as big as it is the trucking industry as we know it it isn't even 100 years old trucks were first used extensively by the military in world war one and then trucking became prominent in the 1930s because of the increased construction on paved roads it didn't take long after that before truckers became a part of american pop culture they started having songs and movies about them and as noted by Shane Hamilton in his book, Trucking Country, The Road to America's Walmart Economy, there was this mythology that almost lionized truckers. So mm. if you would do us all the favor of reading out this section that I found that describes it pretty well. The image of the respectable trucker circulated outside the world of Hollywood in the 1950s as truckers became known as the Knights of the Road for helping stranded motorists and using their blinkers and headlights as courtesy signals. This image was further reinforced by the standard driver's uniform of the era, trim neat pants and buttoned shirt, and a chauffeur's cap. 
The masculine mythologies of trucking moved increasingly into a wider cultural world in the 1950s and 1960s, as the image of the truck-driving man was reflected back to truckers by movies and music. Yeah. The 1970s were when trucking hit its kind of zenith point in pop culture. They wound up being presented as kind of this modern version of cowboys, you know, wandering nomads who rebelled against the oppressive rule of law while still operating under their own kind of honor code. There were a ton of movies and songs during this decade that romanticized the trucker life. And a lot of these have since faded into obscurity. But this was the period when we got that song Convoy by C.W. McCall, which also inspired a movie with a very young shirtless Chris Christopherson. Mm. Smokey and the Bandit came out in 1977, and it was the number three grossing movie of the year behind Star Wars. And there's also a really bad Chuck Norris action flick called Breaker Breaker. It was a moment in pop culture. Are you really going to say that a Chuck Norris movie was bad? What if he's right behind you? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it's always a threat. Don't, don't deny it. <laughs> Man, remember when we all used to like Chuck Norris and we thought he was cool before he went off the deep end and it turned out he's just the worst? <laughs> remember those days? Oh no, we have a nefarious character. Nefarious character alert. Yeah. <laughs> what a shock. <laughs> oh, not on our podcast. Why? I know. All right. This all started to change in the 80s when truckers started being portrayed more villainously or at least poorly in media. And it was starting to decline, but it wasn't quite there yet. The 90s was when it really picked up. And we'll discuss that in a little bit. Mm. But. At the time that this comic project started, big rig truckers were still on the high side of public opinion. So we've talked in previous episodes about how Marvel wound up undergoing a commercial renaissance in the early 80s under the guidance of Jim Shooter, particularly, you know, with Saturday morning cartoons and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. One of the major sources of the success came in the form of toy companies partnering with the publisher for licensed comic adaptations and arguably the biggest example of this kind of success came from partnerships with Hasbro when Marvel created the characters and lore for both Transformers and G.I. Joe. So US-1 was a comic that came about from another partnership, but this one was with a different toy company. It was called Tyco Toys. And Tyco wanted to do a licensed comic based on their US-1 brand of slot truck toys. Oh, Tyco so this was all based on the, the Tyco truck even. Yes, it's a little bit different than the standard Tyco truck, and we'll talk about that mm. in a second. But mm -mm. Tyco probably doesn't sound familiar to people that are younger than us these days. But they were a company that originally made model trains for hobbyists, and then they started making slot car toys in the 1960s, which are, you know, the, the cars that you press the trigger and they go around a track and you can build out the track how you want. So by the 80s, this brand was the one that was dominating that particular section of the market, the, the slot car toy section. And at this point, they decided to create some slot truck toys. It was branded US-1 Electric Trucking, and it launched in 1981. And it was based on the earlier racing sets, but it had a couple of unique features. You could drive the trucks in both forward and reverse. And you could also have the trucks pick up and deliver loads of, and this is the quote, action accessories with that direct interaction from the person operating it. And the tagline was, you control the action. So I've got this commercial that I found on YouTube, because YouTube has everything. And it's actually really cute. 
You want to give it a shot? Sure thing. Okay. How'd you like to get behind the wheel of a 10-ton truck? Now you can with US-1 Electric Trucking. It's got two tough, hard-working trucks that you control. Load the truck, then move out Ooh. down the highway. This is exciting. Shift into reverse. Oh. And dump up. Then hitch that big flatbed. Get that load. Get her on the road and let her go. That's actually really fun. Right. US one electric trucking. No, that's super freaking fun. That is that's super fun. Yeah. So Tycho came to Marvel and they said that they were interested in having a comic adaptation done. And the comic wound up being written by Al Milgram, who's actually, he's a pretty interesting dude in, in comic history. He worked as a writer and editor and anchor and a penciler during his career. And he was particularly known for this long tenure editing Marvel fanfare, where I think he edited it for like a decade. Also, the real reason that he's an industry legend, though, is because Marvel actually fired him after he hid some messaging in a panel background where he was badmouthing the then recently departed editor-in-chief of Marvel. <gasps> oh, damn, that's cold. Yeah, it was actually really funny, and you can look it up, where he basically <sighs> wrote some messages vertically on the spines of books in the background of a Spider-Man comic, and... There's some weird happenstances about how I think the editor caught them and had the wording removed. And then through some error, that image got used instead and went to publish. And yeah, it's <laughs> it's kind um, of amazing. But he was actually a full-time employee, which was really rare for one of the people who was actually creating the comics. And so he was actually fired by Marvel. Wow. Yeah, from what I've read, most of them were freelance, so that's actually yeah. super interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting story, and it's one I would love to talk to him about someday, which we'll discuss that later. I legit love that story about how Milgram got let go because it's totally a move that I would pull. And then, and then the series was originally drawn by this other longtime Marvel artist named Herb Trimp. He'd made a name for himself with The Incredible Hulk, and... Also, he is known as the first artist to actually draw Wolverine for publication because he drew, oh. the, he drew the issue. John Romita came up with the character design of the sketch, but he was the one who actually first drew him in a comic, which was cool. That's super neat. Yeah, and so Trimp also wasn't a stranger to projects like this. He had recently worked on G.I. Joe. He wound up penciling the first two issues. And then Frank Springer came in to finish out the series. And Springer was another reliable artist from Marvel, and he had also been involved with G.I. Joe and Transformers. Milgram actually has an essay at the end of the first issue called In the Driver's Seat, where he talks about the comic's origin. And it starts with how Tycho asked for the comic treatment and then goes into his first meeting with Jim Shooter about the project. And I kind of love this description where he talks about how he wasn't really sold on the idea originally. Frankly, I wasn't sure. Nobody had ever done anything with trucks in comics before. When I voiced the concern to Jim, it was as if I had slapped his face and challenged him to a duel. Exactly, he exploded. Nobody has done it before. Maybe nobody thinks it can be done. There may even be a lot of resistance to the idea, but we can do it and do it well. I got caught up in the challenge. Jim and I did not fight a duel to the death. Lucky for him. 
Instead, we began discussing the idea of a truck driving hero. We talked about the romance of driving a truck, the dedication of those self-sufficient loners who drive the big rigs. We got swept up in the notion, began to solidify the concept of a trucker with a mission, a goal, a quest. Yeah, it's kind of charming to hear how enamored he got with the project during that first meeting. The essay also mentions that Marvel's animation division, which, as we've also covered in that episode about Saturday morning cartoons, was a thing that they had, was working on what sounded like a TV show pitch, and there might be some toys or animated series in the future, but spoiler, that never happened. I'm curious, how would you summarize this comic series? A lot happened, so... (laughs) (laughs) A lot happened. This series was wild from start to finish. It starts with introductions to Ulysses Solomon Archer, or USA, (laughs) and his brother Jefferson, or Jeff. After their parents, who are truck drivers, die in an accident, US and Jeff are raised by Wide Load, who's a woman, and Papa, who are the owners of a truck stop named Shortstop. We need to stop this for a second. You need to acknowledge them by their full names. I'm sorry. Remind me what Papa's name is. Papa Wheelie. Wide, it's Wide Papa Load Annie. Wheelie. And Wide Load Annie. Okay, let me <laughs> re-say that. Okay, excuse me. I'm sorry. It's just, it's too good. No, you're right. I'm not even going to cut any of this. I'm just going to leave it. <laughs> no, you're right. I couldn't, you know what, honestly, because I couldn't remember what their full names were when I was writing this out. <laughs> I was like, this is good enough. Yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah, they're the owners of a truck stop called Short Stop. And U.S. is this all-American, blonde-haired white boy who has it all going for him. He's literally good at everything without trying. And he's encouraged by wide-load Annie and Papa Wheelie to get a college education, even though he knows he wants to be a truck driver, just like his folks and his adoptive parents. And his big brother, Jeff, who he idolizes. And Jeff is your classic dark-haired boy who just can't seem to keep up with U.S.'s successes and also becomes a truck driver, obviously. And seemingly mostly as a backup profession, which is kind of interesting how they... They're both like encouraging and disparaging of truck drivers in parts. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, it, it's kind of strange. There's a, a give and take. I, I don't know what it is. Yeah. I don't know if you the, felt that too. Well, it's the whole thing of he is not good. Jefferson is billed as being not good at school, but U.S. is. And so they're like, no, you have to go to college. You have to make something of yourself. And Papa and Wide Load and Jefferson all support him and send him to school. And Jefferson is doing it via a job in trucking. Yeah. They talk about how expensive college is in those days. And I'm like, my dudes, it's 1980. You could literally go to college (laughs) on a minimum wage job. And it talks about how also I think he had scholarships. and Because he was good at everything. And he double majored in uh, computer science. Electronics. Yeah, exactly. uh, Electrical engineering, I think. And then Uh then computer computer sciences. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Exactly. (laughs) So during a drive with a young U.S. 
Jeff's big rig is run off the road by a devilish figure he calls the highwayman just prior to driving off a cliff. The truck explodes and U.S. is gravely injured in such a way that he evidently needs a skull replacement. I, <laughs> you know, you sure. That? No. <laughs> Usually a skull replacement, you're a lot worse off than just like going to pop awake in a couple minutes after you put something metal back on there. Yeah, it's. I believe they worded as, oh, it's this experimental treatment. And I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. Which already was so sus. Yeah. <laughs> and they basically replace his skull with, it's in, in this comic, it's implied that it's like just the top part of his skull that like, you know, protects the brain. In later comic appearances, it is very strongly hinted that they basically do a brain transplant into... Or that they basically just give him a metal skull of some kind. It's like there's no bone to be like seen. A, but A new head completely. Yeah. Oh, Lord. Goodness gracious. Well, so after that, he vows to find his brother who he's like, I couldn't find him in the crash. It's like, bro, like you kind of couldn't look for him. You had a concussion. Yeah. Like you're not an expert in finding bodies in an explosion. I don't know how he just definitively was like, well, I guess everybody else told him that, that he, the body was never found or whatever, but yeah, that's true. Yeah. So he decides he's going to find his brother as well as the mysterious highway man that he yelled about right before that. And he quickly finds out that he can pick up CB radio waves from his fancy new skull cap. And somehow his truck becomes self-aware and he can communicate directly with it. And it's making like its own decisions inexplicably. It's not well explained once again. It's so his truck originally, he built a remote control into like a half dollar so he can drive it really like, like a precision driver with his remote. But then later on, I think there's, it was like some kind of like a lightning strike or something or electrical overload that then allowed him to directly interface with the truck. And then the truck is also self-aware at times where it's providing narration for an entire issue. And we'll talk yeah, about that Yeah, that's what too, I was going to say. <laughs> like, yeah. It was the weirdest thing. I, I was kind of on board with most of it. And then the truck was having its own inner monologue. And I was like, wait a second, <laughs> guys. Yeah. Oh, goodness gracious. And then there's also a spy planted within the truck stop in the form of a mind-controlled waitress, Mary McGrill, which, their names, all their names. It's all the alliteration and stuff and puns. It's great. Exactly. It's so cheese. I love it. And she uses this wacky mind control whip and there's drama about the truck stop being foreclosed upon and being sold to make condos and and then... Dun, dun, dun! Jeff turns out to be the highwayman! <laughs> <laughs> and there are aliens that are looking for the best person, Reed Trucker, you know, of course, on Earth, to be some kind of space ambassador. Yeah, it's not well explained. <laughs> I, I think it had something to do with they wanted people to pilot their starships because they were, like, accustomed to, like, long bouts of being on their own and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was a whole thing too. And then apparently all humans look alike to the aliens. 
I thought that was funny as fuck. That I was great. I thought that was hysterical. Because <laughs> the aliens are and, so weird looking. Yeah, yeah. And so apparently they had been scoping U.S. this whole time because he's like the golden child. But then they accidentally swooped Jeff instead because they made a mistake. And Jeff was just like, yeah, I'm going to go with it. So once they figured out their mistake, they felt really bad about wasting all of their time and effort on mm-hmm. this <laughs> this putz. <laughs> And so then they, of course, had to have a race to make sure who was the best one to be the space ambassador, whether it was going to be U.S., who, dun, 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 the aliens gave him the skull cap. (laughs) Or his brother, who has been working with the alien tech and has, like, a time advantage and a training advantage. So it's, of course, U.S. wins. I mean, come on. So, of course... They just get sent up into space and he gets to take the whole truck stop with him and all of the people. Yep. (laughs) It's the rapture. Yeah. (laughs) And then the greedy bankers who are left behind, who are going to take the property that the truck stop was on. I think they, they wind up getting dosed with some kind of radiation. Yeah, the they were going to build condos on the land and then it ended up being radioactive. And so the buyer ended up pulling out. Yeah. Like right there, because that's how that works. Yeah. So, yeah, the end. That's it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then the other thing is that for the first half of the series, we are given to believe that the Highwayman is demonic in origin. Like they do a whole thing where he's got his own mind controlled big rig that runs them off the road or whatever. And he's surrounded by devils when he's looking down triumphantly on the wreckage. And there's. You know, it's the mythology of the open road where they're like, oh, he was this trucker who apparently couldn't keep up anymore with the younger truckers and and their newer rigs. So he cut a deal with the devil. And it was, I actually kind of dug it. It was ridiculous and over the top, but it was great. And then it turns out it was just, I don't know, some disguise that he put on just to fuck with everybody. He did the Scooby-Doo unveiling where he pulled a rubber mask off of his face. And I about lost my mind. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, what was your overall impression of the series? It was a fucking wild ride, but it was fun. (laughs) I I like that it was so random at times. It legitimately kept me guessing the whole way. The, The topics, though, they were not subtle with the overbearing American patriotism and the overt disdain for neo-Nazis, which obviously I'm behind. I mean, whatever, that was fine. <laughs> that was great. When they dropped the the neo-Nazis in Tel Aviv. Oh, God. Well, and the funniest part was they were, so one of the antagonists for U.S. is Baron Von Blimp, who Ugh, hi, he looks like, I don't, he looks like kind of this weird aristocrat from turn of the century Europe. You know, he's, I think he even has a monocle. And then, yeah. Towards the end, when he shows up in his blimp, he drops down and he's got a bunch of Nazis with him. And, you know, they've got the swastika armbands and everything. And then it's revealed they're not actually Nazis and he's not even German. He just liked how the uniforms looked. <laughs> and, and then the aliens are like, whatever, we're done with this. And they literally hand wave them away into Israel. And I was like, that's, <laughs> that's just magnificent. Just chef's kiss. Oh, yeah. I, I did actually really like that. <laughs> so so what about you what did you think about this i mean it's one of those comics where i never expected to enjoy it as much as i did 
but there's something so silly and pure about this entire story. It feels like the kind of thing that a five or six year old kid would come up with while playing with their trucks, you know, like mm-hmm. monsters and aliens and races against airships. And then you hand wave away things when you want to change the narrative. And it somehow kind of works, actually. Like, I don't know how, but it kind of does. I really loved, like I talked about, I loved Baron Von Blimp. I thought he was just so weird. And then I liked how the shortstop is essentially the Moss Eisley Cantina, but it's got better coffee. And it seemed like every time that we first visited the place, someone was getting thrown through a window, which was kind of great. Absolutely. There was always a fight scene. It reminded me of a saloon, like one of those old timey saloons with people getting thrown out double doors and things Mm -hmm. crashing. Yeah. And then we talked about how U.S.'s truck was self-aware, but the, (laughs) but I love the bit where Papa refers to it as a she and the truck sits there and says, I'm not a she, but I'm secure enough in myself that it's fine. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that is weirdly topical through a 2021 lens, but this is also really good. And also every cover to this comic, it is a work of art. Like like the styles vary, but they're really cool looking and they're just really weird. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was a blast. Were there any highlights for you or any lowlights? So I have to say, my eyes just about rolled out of my head when the aliens showed up and needed chicken parts to make their ship work correctly. (laughs) And the rivalry between the two female characters was pretty contrived. I did like how they were trying to sit there and spin it so you didn't know who was the the sleeper agent. I thought that was kind of cool. But yeah, they were, you know, they were fighting over U.S. and that was dumb. But it's also, yeah, yeah, it's the 1980s. What are you going to do? Exactly. It had to have some sort of you know, forced love triangle of some nature. (laughs) But I have to say, I was oddly charmed at the editing notes from Ralph Macchio, of all people. Uh, Editor with the same name as the actor. Oh, okay. All right. Wow, goodness gracious, because I was, like, giving that guy a lot of credit. Nope. (laughs) I I did like that, though. I did like the little comments, the little editing notes. It was a little much sometimes, but I love that he was throwing shade at the writers sometimes or reminding the reader about the previous events or where you could read about them. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting how in-depth they recapped each issue. But it must have been nice for the readers who weren't starting from issue one. Yeah, and especially because it was a maxi series and then it started in mid-1983, and then it ended in late 1984. So it went from monthly to bi-monthly. And it was not a big-name comic in the first place, so it makes sense that they would sit there and provide that background for readers. And I also really appreciated that it was all the same characters over and over again, so that it wasn't doing anything crazy new. But at the same time, each of those issues you could pick up, except for the last couple, and they felt pretty easy to understand. Yeah. I would say so. I mentioned earlier that this was another licensed comic that was designed to help promote a toy line, but as opposed to G.I. Joe and Transformers, though, this wasn't nearly as successful. Comicron, which is a site that tracks sales data for comics, doesn't have 1983 data in place yet, but the site Comic Book Historians has this incredible online community, and I actually wound up posting there and asking if anyone had any insight into how the comic sold. And 
Al Milgram himself wound up chiming in. If you would be oh. so kind. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. That's cool as heck. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So okay. if you wow, I got, sorry, I got a little response. nervous. <laughs> oh, oh, sure. <laughs> I think the first issue sold around 160,000 or so. Not great for a first issue, but respectable. Marvel only contracted with the toy company to do a dozen issues. I'm sure the sales went downhill from there. Still think the book was some good silly fun, though. I may be biased. <laughs> yeah, I was really stunned. This, the, the comic book historian group actually has a lot of amazing industry professionals involved in it. I've seen writers like Mark Wade chime in. The owner of Mile High Comics routinely posts about comic book history as well. They have a podcast and a YouTube series. They did a long series of interviews with Jim Shooter that was really cool, which actually I think did a lot to kind of redeem his character a bit because a lot of people view him as a villain in the comic book industry. But but yeah, Milgram was super cool to chime in on that. And I wound up talking to him briefly afterwards and he said he'd be open to doing an interview with us at some point. So maybe there will be a part two to the US one episode. That's exciting. Yeah. The comic series ran for roughly a year and a half, and it ended in October of 1984. The US-1 toys were moderately more successful. They lasted until 86. And then after this, trucking and pop culture continued to undergo this shift. And it feels like the 90s, as I said, was when things really started to significantly change. Like Thelma and Louise. You've seen Thelma and Louise, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you remember how there's that gross trucker who keeps on harassing them? Yes. Yeah, there was that Kurt Russell trucking movie called Breakdown, where the villains were truckers. And then, I mean, it's kind of still how they're portrayed these days in media. I really don't think it helped that the FBI released this five-year study back in 2009 that linked long-haul trucking to serial killers. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's not saying all long-haul truckers or a majority of long-haul truckers are serial killers, but that... There are a number of serial killers who are long-haul truckers, and it makes sense because there's a lack of supervision, and also you can pick someone up in one state, kill them in another, and then drop them off and dump the body in a third. And also, a lot of times, the people that they pick up are people that no one really misses. Yeah. Yikes. On that high note, (laughs) the funny thing is that this isn't where Ulysses S. Archer's story ends. So even though this was a licensed comic book for a company that was eventually acquired by Mattel, it seems like Marvel still owns the rights to the characters themselves. Because Ulysses pops up every now and then. He's usually like the supporting character, but sometimes it's as this one-off deep cut. So he appeared in a couple of issues of John Byrne's Sensational She-Hulk in the early 90s. He was supporting the She-Hulk for a few issues. There was a brief cameo in the 2010 series New Avengers where he applied to be a babysitter for Luke Cage and Jessica Jones's daughter. Oh, jeez. It was, it was actually pretty funny. He wound up helping out Rocket Raccoon in this backup story of a 2011 series called The Annihilators. And then he also teamed up with Deadpool around the same time. And that's the issue where you see it looks like he's actually got a fully replaced skull made out of metal. Okay, They, they, okay. they do one of those like, cross-section cuts where you, see, oh. where you see underneath the skin, it looks like he's got just an all-metal skull. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and then after that, we haven't heard much about him in the Marvel Universe, but weirdly, his brother, Jefferson, has appeared a bit too. 
So he was listed as a character in the Dark Rain Files, which was a who's who guide to various Marvel villains in 2009. And it actually retconned his story. Basically, it claims that the Highwayman, after staying on Earth, wound up actually cutting a deal with Satan, in quotes, whoever that is. Huh. And then he wound up fighting against Ghost Rider. (laughs) And then, aside from the issue where Deadpool teams up with his brother, he teamed up with Deadpool in 2016 or so. Wow. That's super random. (laughs) Yeah. And now we're in 2021, and it's been a few years since we've seen Ulysses and his friends show up. But I personally think that we're kind of overdue to have him come back. Like, I want to see Papa Wheelie in something. Right. I would love to see him show up as a strong support character in one of those like heroes on the run stories where whatever hero of the book is being pursued by the government or something like that. And then he basically winds up providing kind of a mobile base of operations or something like that. And then he helps them keep our heroes one step ahead of the law. Like, yeah, I, like he floats down on the shortstop, like space station or something. Yeah, yeah that'd still, be cool as heck. Yeah, or something. I mean, there's so many different ways you could do. You, you could have him come back to Earth, and he just winds up working as a trucker again because that's what he really likes. He misses driving through the natural beauty of America, something like that. You know, it, yeah. I think there could be some really fun opportunities, and I really hope that Marvel brings him back at some point because he was just this really fun, weird character, and. It was strange and it was silly, but it was also very sweet. So that is US-1 in a nutshell. What are your final thoughts on it? I think it was a lot of fun. It was bananagrams, you know, (laughs) all the way to the top, but it was fun. Yeah. All right. It is now time for that part of the episode called Brain Wrinkles, which is when we like to discuss things that are comics related that are just sticking in our head and won't get out. Do you mind if I go first? Oh, please do. All right. I was going to talk about the recent news that Marvel's hired someone to direct Blade, but I'm actually way more excited about something else. There's this podcast called Comic Book Couples Counseling, which is this absolutely rad show. It's hosted by married couple Brad and Lisa Gullickson, and they take relationships between comics characters and then examine them through the lens of different self-help love gurus. So they've been super supportive of us so far. Like they've actually retweeted our stuff and their show is really fun. But I was recently reading through a whole bunch of nineties Valiant comics that I managed to pick up from the Batcave in Santa Rosa when they had this blind box sale. And one of the series contained in these boxes is called the second life of Dr. Mirage. And it's one of the series that I collected when I was a kid. It's about this married couple named Huen Fong and Carmen Ruiz who work as parapsychologists. Huen is this kind of like nebbish little guy and Carmen is this bruiser. Like she's the badass of the pair. There's this early scene where she winds up saving him from zombies because she's a master of capoeira, which is, you know, it makes sense because she's from Brazil. And then in the first issue, they run afoul of Valiant's resident necromancer named Master Dark, and he kills Hwen, but then Hwen comes back as a ghost. Sort of a ghost. Kind of a ghost. Mm. But I was reading through the series, and I was really struck how this was a superhero comic that actually focused on an adult relationship and relationship issues that come along with the supernatural stuff. Like, early on, Carmen has a pretty heartfelt talk with her undead husband about how difficult it is for her emotionally because he's still with her 
but she can't touch him. Oh my God. And anyway, so like I wound up tweeting about it because I thought the couple would make a good topic for comic book couples counseling. And they wound up picking up all the back issues like that day. And they're going to do an episode about the characters. So I'm super excited to listen to this. Oh, that's super fun. Yeah. See, and I was going to talk about the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. No, they're so good. So I'm that person who has to start from episode one. They've got a lot of episodes too. They do. They're back to 2018. So I just went all the way back. And it's so fun, though. I like to get that rapport. I like to make sure I had that parasocial, you know, relationship really hooked in there (laughs) with all the podcasts I listen to. (laughs) So the first section that they did, because they always do kind of like a month at a time focused on one set of characters. The first one was the relationship facets of Jean Grey and Scott Summers from the Mm -hmm. X-Men. And I love the X-Men, so it was really neat to hear all of the different ways that they had a relationship. And then they were comparing it to a book about relationships. It was very interesting. It was very topical. And I liked that they also are very sweet and introspective about their own relationship. It's really lovely. Yeah. And like what they can do, what they could take out of it to apply to their own marriage. Yeah. Which is, it's so sweet. So thank you guys. You guys are great. Yeah. Comic book couples counseling. Brad and Lisa, absolutely friends of the podcast. Absolutely. And, you know, if they ever want to come on here, they are more than welcome. And (laughs) we will talk about whatever they want to talk about. Open invitation. I'll even read a, I'll even, I'm not in a couple, but I'll read a self-help book if if that's (laughs) what it takes. (laughs) All right. I think that's all from us. We'll be back in two weeks. And until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find on Instagram as LookMomDraws. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TenCentTakes.com or shoot an email to TenCentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TenCentTakes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.